This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge at Wharton website. And on our show today, we have kind of a threequel. We are going to be talking about a new way of valuing companies based on the value of their customers. And the two researchers that are behind this method have been with us before to talk about it. And now they're going to tell us what's happened since the last time they were here. So in the studio with us is Wharton Marketing Professor Peter Fader. Pete, welcome back. Always good to talk about customer-based corporate valuation with you, Rachel. Great. And on the phone with us is Dan McCarthy. He got his Ph.D. here at Wharton, and now he's a professor at Emory University in Atlanta. Hi, Dan. How are you? Yeah, doing well. It's great to be with you, even though I'm a little further down south. Well, it's probably better for you. <laughs> it's a little cold here today. Um, so first of all, why don't you guys get everybody up to speed a little bit and tell us about, the, you started out with this model for subscription-based businesses. So briefly tell us how this model works for those businesses. Why don't you go ahead, Dan? It's your baby. Yeah, so at the highest level, uh, kind of what the what a traditional financial analyst would do is just kind of project out what future revenues are going to be and have that drive you know, kind of a traditional uh, model for the overall valuation of the firm, you know, basically modeling how uh, those revel- revenues trickle down into profits and uh, use that to kind of drive an estimate of the valuation of the firm. And we don't dispute that at all, but the main thing that we would claim is that Embedded within that revenue number is a lot of potentially very useful uh, customer behavior uh, decompositions that can be done. So instead of thinking about revenues as a monolithic unit, uh, we can think of it in terms of revenues coming from new customers and, uh, and from existing customers being retained. And companies that have do a very good job of, of retaining their customers and uh, developing the value of, of everybody uh, you know, over time, they should be awarded a much higher multiple than another business that uh, does not retain their customers as well, even if, on a historical basis, uh, the revenue patterns look exactly the same. So I think at a high level, you know, what customer-based corporate valuation is, is kind of taking a standard uh, valuation model and really just providing extra dimension to uh, how those revenue projections are made. Now, the next stop for this research was non-subscription-based businesses, and those are a little more complicated because it's harder to know when a customer churns in or churns out. So what data becomes particularly important when you turn the model over to this type of business? So just back up a a step. So so, uh, companies disclose different kinds of information. Uh, Some disclose nothing when it comes to their customers. There's no obligation to do so. But some companies, for whatever reason, maybe they just think about them as trophy metrics, like, hey, we can count our customers. Uh, maybe they think there's some uh, diagnostic value. There, there is. Uh, uh, so different companies uh, might disclose different kinds of metrics. The, the big issue in our mind is whether it's a subscription business or a non-subscription business. A non-subscription is much more difficult because you don't know if the uh, customer is, is canceling a contract. All you know is they just stop purchasing. Uh, This has been an aspiration of mine for many, many years. Can we just take some aggregated company-disclosed metrics and back out the the, the nature of the unobservable lifetimes? How long are these customers going to stay around? How many transactions are they going to make? How much are they going to spend? And this was a challenge that I put in front of young Dan McCarthy uh, that ended up being kind of the heart of his dissertation. Uh, And uh, both the statistical results as well as their managerial implications are, well, awesome. Uh, Dan, why don't you talk about it? 
been very exciting. Uh, I'd say, you know, we had started off in an interview with you, Rachel, about Dish Network and SiriusXM, and it's really uh, kind of taken off since then. So I don't know if, if you think it'd be best to uh, discuss a little bit um, kind of the methodology for non-subscription businesses, or if you think it'd be best to kind of uh, to lead in a different direction. But yeah, happy to take it however you think would be uh, best for the listeners. Well, I think to show a little bit about the impact that this method can have is I'd love to talk about a couple of the other case studies that you've done. So a good example is you applied the subscription-based method to a company called Blue Apron. And at the time, it was a company that was about to do an IPO, and it was getting a lot of press for really exponential, impressive growth. And you had some interesting findings for it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so it's actually, it was Pete who had kind of brought it to my attention. And uh, so they put out a, an IPO prospectus, which all companies that are about to IPO do. And in it, they threw in some customer metrics. It's kind of almost throwaway statements that kind of further support how the company's been able to rapidly grow. And so you know, they're showing very strong growth. They said, hey, you know, not only are revenues growing, but we also have uh, very strong active customer growth and, you know, other, other metrics like that. But essentially, they gave just enough information for us to be able to use the same sort of methodology that we did and, and described to you uh, that was applied to Dish Network and SiriusXM. I basically used a similar sort of methodology for Blue Apron. And essentially, what it ended up uncovering was that even though the company has been able to generate you know, very rapid growth, it was really primarily driven by uh, heavy marketing spending that they had been uh, just throwing heaps and heaps of money at customer acquisition. So it was bringing in a lot of new customers, which was, you know, generating revenues. But existing customers were not staying around for very long. And so one of the highlight numbers was after six months, 70% of customers uh, that had been acquired had churned out. And that really did not spell well for the future kind of uh, success of the business because Essentially, what it implies is that they're on something of an acquisition treadmill. That to be able to continue to show that very strong revenue growth, they're going to need to spend more and more and more money on, on customer acquisition. And that's inherently just much less profitable, uh, which made it much less likely uh, that they were going to be able to achieve profitability at some point in the near future. And what Dan did is he uh, put out a couple of LinkedIn posts. Uh, it was almost like, hey, look at what we can do with the kinds of metrics that Blue Apron is putting out there. We can find all kinds of insights that they didn't disclose, but really tell you the parts of the story that you want to know. And those LinkedIn posts, uh, well, they went viral. And uh, a, a lot of people really more in the investment community than, than academics or, or, or marketers uh, picked up on it and said, this is really important information. Uh, it, it completely changes the way that we see Blue Apron, and we'll let Dan talk about some of the, the impact that it's had specifically on that company. And it's also uh, carried over to a number of other subscription-type businesses. And that analysis that he did has really become kind of the, the, the de facto way to approach these kinds of thing-of-a-month club. And I think all of them and their investors are paying very close attention to the work that Dan has done and the, the things that he continues to say in social media. 
Right. And I mean, I know, Dan, you also applied this to HelloFresh, which is a similar company. And for those of you listening on iTunes, if you want to head over to our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu, we will link to all of those LinkedIn posts and to all the papers and to our two original interviews. You can learn as much about this as you like. But Dan, tell us a little bit about how companies, how companies and investors are taking notice of this. Yeah, so essentially maybe first I can talk a little bit about the impact on the, the stock price, or at least sure. what what eventually happened to the stock price, and then uh, maybe a little bit about you know, just the impact on the, the broader investment community. Um, yeah, so essentially Blue Apron, uh, they had originally priced their IPO uh, at 15 to $17 per share, which put them at up at about a $3 billion valuation. So a very, very healthy uh, valuation multiple of, of their then current revenues. I put out my analysis about four days later. That was the kind of the main analysis that uh, ended up going viral. And just actually five days after I posted that, uh, they slashed their IPO target range down to ten to eleven dollars. They ended up IPOing at ten. And last I checked, I haven't checked it today, but last I checked, it was hovering at around three dollars a share. So even from that. You know, kind of heavily discounted IPO price, they've fallen a further 70%. Uh, and that's no coincidence uh, relative to the 70% of, of customers that churn out after <laughs> after six months. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- really, the, the implication on the stock price has been very stark. And a lot of people had been kind of blaming uh, the Amazon acquisition of, of Whole Foods, but it's just total baloney because every time – Blue Apron had released a new set of earnings. Uh, their fundamental performance at that time was very poor. And so, you know, essentially, in each of the last couple of uh, earnings conference calls, on the day that they disclosed their earnings, the stock had dropped by 18% or more. So it, this really was a story of, of fundamental financial weakness. And I truly believe that these methods would have kind of helped investors dodge that, that bullet. But what's interesting about it is you would think that Dan McCarthy would be public enemy number one in the eyes of anyone associated with Blue Apron, uh, yet they seem to have a great deal of respect for him and actually have uh, various people that have ongoing conversations with him about what's both behind the analysis and and what it means for them uh, on an ongoing basis. So why don't you elaborate on that, Dan? Yeah, to their credit, they've been very mature. They've been receptive to the analysis, and I think they've been taking a lot of steps to really improve the underlying retention issues that I'd kind of called some attention to, uh, to the point that I've had a number of ongoing communications with uh, their communications manager, and uh, Jared Clough, their CMO, uh, has acknowledged the work publicly, saying that a number of of the executives are are following the work because of its relevance to, to what they do. So I think that they've really, they're doing what you would hope that, uh, you know, a mature kind of shareholder value-focused management team would do, you know, that instead of trying to shoot the messenger, they're really trying to uh, to solve the, the problem at hand. Right, to use it as a model of what they could do to fix whatever's going on. Now, you had also done a case study with the non-subscription-based model on a couple of online furniture retailers, and that's Overstock and Wayfair. And that paper also had a pretty big impact on one of those retailers. So why don't you tell us briefly about that? So let me set the stage and let Dan get into the details. Uh, So remember, this is primarily academic work. We're just trying to establish both the 
the, the credibility of this direction of analysis as well as the methods that we use to, to implement it, that's all we wanted to do. And we looked around hard. We needed to find companies that in their public disclosures were giving just the right kinds of metrics that would let us back out the, the, the lifetimes of customers and so on. And it turns out that uh, Overstock.com and Wayfair just happen to give just right metrics that let us do that. That's the reason we chose them. We have no particular interest in, in those companies or the, the fact that they share a similar sector. It doesn't really matter. In fact, they're very different kinds of companies. Uh, but they, they gave us the right kind of data and very objectively taking into account basically none of the kind of uh, uh, institutional details of these companies, just looking at the numbers, we projected, here we go again, the number of customers to be acquired, how long they're going to stay, what they're going to do, how much they're going to spend, how that varies across the customer base, add it all up, projected it out, and the results were stunning, both in terms of uh, what the numbers looked like and then how they were received. This is where Dan McCarthy comes in. Go ahead, Dan. Yes, yeah, so the numbers that were a little more like actually Dish Network and SiriusXM were the numbers for for Overstock. We ended up with a, a price estimate that was very similar to the then current stock price. So for them, and we basically concluded, yeah, this seems about right to me. Uh, for Wayfair, uh, that was definitely very far from the case. Uh, I think the stock had been trading at about 64 at the time that we did the analysis. And let's just say that our, our price estimate was down below 10. <laughs> so uh, they definitely took notice, as did a lot of other people within the investment community. Uh, we posted it to SSRN, which is kind of the, the standard place where people will uh, post marketing science work. And I believe it was the very next day that uh, a very famous short seller, Andrew Left from Citron Research, uh, began tweeting about the analysis. And it just created this veritable flood of, of uh, interest and downloads in, in the work to the point that even though the paper had only been around for, you know, say, a month, uh, first, it was on the the top time, the top uh, all all time most downloaded list. Uh, it's kind of on the verge of of, of hitting that list, uh, even even though it's been there for for just a month. Uh, but I'd say that work has also generated a lot more attention, even more so than Blue Apron. Uh, kind of from you know, kind of your traditional hedge fund uh, hedge fund type uh, investment analyst. Uh, and so we've received a number of calls and a lot of interest from uh, you know, just various XYZ capital hedge funds uh, and even sell-side equity research firms. So uh, unlike the, the Blue Apron work, uh, there were actually two sell-side uh, equity research firms that uh, put out research notes that were entirely devoted to, to the work that we had done. Um, and the reason why was because Essentially, uh, the day after that we posted our analysis, uh, the stock had dropped about 10%, really without any other news on the day. And so it really did seem like uh, the reason that the stock had fallen that day was because of this work and, and perhaps the visibility uh, that was generated by the, the short seller calling attention to it. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast, and we're here with Wharton's Peter Fader and Wharton PhD and Emory University professor Dan McCarthy talking about their method of valuing companies based on the value of their customers and the impact that it's had. And this seems like all of this reaction that you're getting, it seems to really point to a desire on behalf of investors, a desire on behalf of the people that watch these companies to get this kind of information. It sort of points to that something was missing 
before about how we value companies. Well, Rachel, it actually goes both ways. Uh, Dan said uh, how a, a number of, of these these uh, analysts picked up on the research doesn't mean they agreed with it. Right. <laughs> so, in yeah. fact, uh, take into account the, the, the point I made before, which is we didn't look at any of the kind of institutional contextual details of the company. We were going with the numbers. Uh, and so uh, a, a lot of the, the analysts who didn't like our results, some of the big shareholders in Wayfair said, well, you're ignoring this this detail or this speculation or just the overall spirit of the company. And we're saying, yeah, we are indeed. We want to be as objective as possible. So a lot of people just didn't like what we were saying and were kind of basically finding, I might almost say, excuses to, to shoot it down. But it did spark a conversation. It did force them, even if they're going to kind of bring in these other factors, it did force them to confront some of the numbers that Wayfair itself is putting out there. And they, it did force them to try to explain away why some of these repeat purchasing numbers were so weak. And some of their explanations were also pretty weak. Well, one of them was, I think one of the analysts had written that it didn't take into account that furniture buying is cyclical, that it's not something people are doing constantly. They often do it seasonally. And you had had said that that was not necessarily a factor here. So. Uh-huh, sure. Uh, well, well and, and Dan can elaborate a little bit more on, on uh, some of the, the spe- specifics of, of uh, how people uh, reacted and, e- and either ignored or, or misunderstood the research. Very interesting. Dan? I think, yeah, Rachel, that's uh, definitely one of the big concerns that some people had raised was, you know, kind of given how people buy furniture, that these methods would not apply. And that's definitely not true. I'd say we can speak to that kind of from two angles. For one, there's a theoretical angle that our models allow for long purchase cycles. If someone only buys once a year, our models can definitely say, even if it's been 11 months since that person last made a purchase, this is just a person who has a low base purchase rate but is definitely still with the firm. So our models can certainly infer that. The other way that uh, we can approach it is really kind of from a pragmatic uh, internal data standpoint. So uh, Pete and I were also co-founders in a a predictive analytics startup called Zodiac. And through Zodiac, we've seen many, many firms uh, that have provided us their data uh, that have very long inter-purchase cycles. And we know firsthand from having predicted data for those types of firms that our models can certainly uh, model and, and, and predict future behavior for them very well. So uh, you know, both theoretically and practically speaking, uh, that's really not something that I would be concerned about. Now, do you feel like this research points to maybe an inherent problem with companies over-investing to acquire company? over-investing to acquire customers and under-investing to retain them? Because that seems to be the weaknesses that you're finding here. Yeah, my casual inference from the, the Wayfair uh, episode is exactly that, that they're they're spending like crazy to acquire, very, very uh, inefficiently. And so if you just look at the surface level, you see this kind of hockey stick exponential growth, but it's all acquisition. They're just, just getting a bunch of people to come in those same people aren't coming back nearly as often as you might expect them to be. In fact, their repeat purchase rates are a lot lower than they were for Amazon even close to 20 years ago. Uh, and, and this is from their own data. So I'm not saying that Wayfair is doing anything 
uh, unethical. Uh, again, if, if that's what the, the shareholders find most appealing to just pump all that money into acquisition, then they're following the right instincts. But if you're being really objective about it, and if you're trying to find this balance between acquisition and retention, it's really important to look below the surface of the data. And maybe just to, to kind of put a, a very fine point on that, you can have two companies that both pump a lot of money into customer acquisition. And what's really going to differentiate the winner from the loser is how well those companies are able to retain those customers after they've been acquired. And if you were to take a company like Harry's or Dollar's Shave Club or Netflix or Amazon, they are tremendously able to, uh, to keep their existing customers coming back. And so what happens is, kind of roll forward the clock 10 years, those companies don't have to spend very much money at all to acquire new customers, and they're able to become profitable. The companies that have a very difficult time are the ones that don't do a good job of retaining their customers, and they are never able to kind of dial back on customer acquisition, which makes it very hard for them to get out of that loss-making uh, situation. So I think it really puts a very strong emphasis on the importance of, of retention. Now, what's for the what's the lesson here for different companies? I mean, this research had an impact, we think, on Wayfair stock. I mean, it really the people at Blue Apron have been contacting you. Can I mean, how can these companies turn it around, or any company that is suffering from this particular issue? Well, first and foremost, it's it's just use your own internal data better. So you know, we'll talk about the disclosures next, but uh, find that right balance between acquisition and retention, just as as Dan said. Uh, and companies, just given the the external incentives from Wall Street, they just haven't been doing that very well. Uh, it's I'm not saying it's easy, but but they're they're not even uh, looking to do so. Uh, so so it's it's find the right balance, uh, and then there's uh, what metrics should they be disclosing? And Dan has a lot of thoughts on that. Right, and I mean you took all this research based on numbers that these companies did publicly disclose, but you point out that this isn't something companies have to do. Not every company is disclosing the same thing. So, Dan, I guess what what does this say about the type of disclosures that maybe companies should or could be making? Yeah, I think for subscription-based firms, it's pretty clear. If companies simply disclosed the number of customers they acquired kind of quarter by quarter and then just the total number of customers that they have uh, every quarter, that we can do a reasonable job of being able to model and forecast and you know, be able to kind of back out the underlying retention of uh, of customers at those firms. Where it becomes trickier is with these non-subscription firms like Wayfair. And for them, uh, I'd say we're still kind of doing some ongoing research on that. But I think the, the main conclusion that we've reached so far is if they were to simply disclose one additional metric, so basically just three, uh, the number of customers that they acquired period by period, and then just the total number of customers who are still active every period. And then finally, uh, the number of orders that are placed each period, just those three, then we can basically play the same sort of a game that we do for subscription businesses, but now we can back out not only how many customers are acquired over time, but how many purchases those customers will make while they're with the firm before they, they end their relationships with the firm. Now, that could be, so if companies are doing a good job of retention, if they're disclosing this, that's, that's good news for them. But if they're not, that's bad news for them. So why, why release the, that data then? Yeah, I think the fact that 
Overstock and Wayfair have released that data. It's more just to be helpful. I didn't. I don't think that they actually realized that people could kind of read between the lines and fill in the blanks about you know, what that implies for their customer retention. Uh, if they did, that's wonderful. But um, yeah, I think it, it it really would speak to you know, like why would you be disclosing this if the numbers didn't look good? I think there's a lot of companies that. Uh, have taken the opposite tack from from Overstock and Wayfair and just not disclosed any meaningful set of metrics at all. And in fact, most non-subscription firms uh, do not disclose uh, anything like what Overstock and Wayfair did. And so really, that's part of the reason why I think Pete and I kind of going into the valuation exercise for these two companies, we were almost sad that that was the conclusion for, for Wayfair because at the end of the day, we would like a lot more companies to do what Wayfair is doing and disclose exactly the same sort of data that they have. So um, in that sense, we really have no vested interest at all. And in fact, if there is any vested interest, it's you know, that, that, that the price is more normalized. Mm-hmm. And so we hope it's, it's going to come down to investors uh, basically demanding that these companies disclose the kinds of metrics that are going to let them do their job properly. At this point, there's, there's nothing about accounting standards. I mean, it, it, we're decades away from anything like that happening. But if investors are, are going to these companies and saying, hey, listen, you know, I want to I come up with as accurate a forecast as possible for you, you got to give me these, these kind of rolled up quarterly metrics about, say, uh, total orders and so on. I, I think it's going to happen more informally like that. Uh, it's going to happen, I think, in cases, as you mentioned, Rachel, where, where companies want to boast a little bit. But companies don't want to just start and stop. They're either going to do it and stay with it or not. Uh, and we hope that some of them will have uh, both the, the discipline and transparency, uh, that, that helpfulness, as Dan said, just to put this stuff out there uh, and, and hope that people can, can get a clearer picture on what they're all about. Now, what additional work needs to be done on this method? Well, the... Uh so I'd say the, the paper that we wrote on non-subscription businesses is pretty much a wrap by this point. I think it, it's pretty safe to say that you know, we feel pretty good about that work. I'd say in terms of expanding the scope and applicability of the methods you know, through kind of cutting-edge research, one of the big next steps would be to be able to apply this method to a lot more companies like Overstock, Wayfair, Dish, and SiriusXM. So, you know, I think one of the things that would be very interesting would be to explore alternative data sets and see if perhaps those can be leveraged to you know, just expand the universe of companies that would be applicable to these methods you know, by, by orders of magnitude. And I think that would be possible, but I think there would be a lot of uh, very serious methodological challenges that would have to be tackled along the way. So I think that would be a great example of, of work that would be both you know, very interesting statistically uh, but also have uh, very serious uh, impact, uh, just kind of practically speaking. And I think that could be the other potential way that we could actually get a lot more companies to uh, disclose these metrics on their own. As Pete was saying, one of them would just be that the good companies start disclosing, and it kind of makes the bad companies feel like they need to disclose, or else you know, the investors are going to really kind of call, call them out on it anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other one would be, look, the investors are getting this information through a proxy that's good enough, so you might as well disclose the actual data yourself because they basically have the answer uh, already. So yeah, I think this sort of work could really help kind of move us in that direction. 
Well, we hope you'll come back and tell us about it with the next phase of the work. Um, Dan and Pete, thanks so much for being with us today. It was so lucky to have an opportunity to, to talk through this whole trilogy, and there's definitely more to come. Great. And you can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts uh, and all of our articles on our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu, and that includes our two previous interviews with Pete and Dan. And you can also find us on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review because it helps people find the podcast. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 